Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the TLS podcast. With the summer holidays upon us, now seems a good time to take stock and revisit some memorable moments from a year's worth of podcasts. This week, we discuss the continued cultural impact of one of the world's greatest crime writers, Agatha Christie. And as the book along list for 2021 has been announced, the author Edmund Gordon reviews one of this year's nominees, Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. But let's start with someone who has not only been nominated for a Booker Prize, but who, last autumn, won it. In the week following the announcement, our own Toby Lishtig was joined by Douglas Stewart to talk about his hard-hitting and yet somehow funny novel, Shuggy Bane. Shuggy Bane. Firstly, I'm sorry about my pronunciation. I'm not going to try and do a Glaswegian accent, but if I say Shuggy, <laughs> is that okay? That's pretty good. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm just going to say Shuggy, but with my sort of flat London brogue or whatever it is that I've got. Um, so <laughs> Shuggy Bane has been described by you as a Thomas Hardy novel set in Glasgow. Um, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I don't know if it's a Thomas Hardy novel as much as uh, one of the biggest influences on my writing has certainly been Thomas Hardy. Um, I wanted to look at something that swept across Glasgow. It's a love story between mother and son uh, as they're struggling to survive in 1980s Glasgow as the city is sinking into 26% unemployment all around them. Uh, But Agnes Bain, who is the mother of the family, is a bright, beautiful, proud, generous mother. But after she's cruelly abandoned by her husband, she begins to descend into addiction and alcoholism. And it's her youngest son, Shuggy, who stays by her side the longest and loves his mother and tries to save her from her from her fate. And I think it's that question of fate and doom and also how uh, in Hardy's work, Tess is sort of uh, formed and passed and used by the, the, the things that happen to her. Um, Agnes almost is too. She's kind of tossed around in in the winds of the time, and uh, we, we it sort of echoes some of what I feel about Tess. Yeah, so these sort of these marginal figures, aren't they? Who are central to your narrative, and Shuggy himself feels quite sort of different and other and marginal within within his own community. And I guess uh, Agnes as a woman is is marginalised in this very patriarchal society, but also because of her own struggles to kind of keep her life in order. She is also on the kind of periphery of things. That's right. I mean, it, here's a mother, like many mothers in the 80s, who had so much ambition and dreams and wants, and society would give her nowhere to put them um, as a working-class woman. Uh, and so at the first half of the book, we almost see her as being too much. She's seen by the character around her as being too much, almost exhausting. Uh, but actually, she's not too much. It's just the world around her is not enough. <laughs> um, and Shuggy as well, as you say, has, is dealing with his own sort of form of uh, isolation because he's very quickly deemed no right by the people around him, which is a very Glaswegian blunt way of saying, what's wrong with you? Why are you like this? Uh, but he is an effeminate little boy. He's precocious because... 
his entire universe is his mother so he's around you know his he learns everything through her um and he's othered very quickly by the boys and the men around them I mean, and you talk about fate. I mean, it's interesting because uh, although we follow Shuggy through his childhood um, into, into his early adolescence in this novel, there's actually a prologue, isn't there? A short prologue uh, mm. in the beginning in which we see the teenage Shuggy. Obviously, something's gone badly wrong. He's living alone in a bedsit. He's being taken advantage of um, by his boss, a delicatessen, and he's being sort of perved on by this creepy fellow guest. And he's, he's very much, you can see, he's a victim. But already at this stage, you can see this resilience. It's a kind of polite resilience, but it's definitely a resilience. And I just wonder, what, what, to what extent you think this is a novel about surviving? I think it's absolutely a novel about surviving. And actually, Shuggy, opening with the question of Shuggy and his own fate, I wanted to frame then Agnes's choices and what she does throughout the book. And all of the things that Agnes does and Shuggy does, and even uh, halfway through the book, we see that Agnes's mother had to make some very difficult choices about surviving, um, is really looking at when the chips are down or when things are hard, people do what they can to get by. And there's a dignity in that, although sometimes it's difficult to look at or maybe to process if you've never been in that situation yourself. None of us know what we would do until we're sort of faced with the headwinds or the troubles that, that the Bain family face. Um, but I also wanted to show Shuggy in that situation because then it, I hoped it increased his compassion for his mother as we watch her go through her journey throughout the book. Um, because I think the big one, hopefully one of the themes in the book is empathy as well and how the characters relate to each other. Hope is central to the book, but it's not always a big sort of shining horizon or a big, sometimes in literature, it's a very glowing thing in the far distance. And I think that hope for many people who are maybe struggling or having a tough time is just the ability to get up every single day and face another day and get up again the next day and face another day and keep going. That is a hope. It's a it's a small glimmer of hope, but it, uh, but it's a very powerful thing. You absolutely see that in the character of, of Agnes, who, you know, however however bad she is and in whatever bad state she got in the night before, she will get up, she will apply her lipstick, won't she? She'll get mm-hmm. dressed and she'll, you know, exit her house looking like the best dressed woman in the, you know, in the community. As you say, those kind of just the sort of the hope, the hope and dignity is is really central, is really central to this. There's also the idea of escape, isn't there? So, I mean, Agnes herself, she kind of she wants to better herself. That's how she ends up on on the on this on the scheme, which kind of happens Mm. about 100 pages into the novel, I guess. And then you've got, um, you know, she's got three children. Obviously, it's it's primarily about the relationship between her and her youngest, Shuggy. But you've got her her oldest daughter, Catherine, and, and the middle child, Leek, and they both try to get away. And I just I wondered if you could talk a little bit about about that sort of the desire to to escape and transcend in the book. Absolutely. At the beginning of the book, we see Agnes and her husband and their three children uh, living with Agnes's mother and father in a high rise tower block in the middle of the city, which at the very beginning of the 60s seemed like the cure to all the city's ills. And we now know that uh, these were very hastily made and they've since been torn down. It was an actual real tower block called Site Hill. But Agnes longs for a front door of her own. She wants a garden for the kids to play in. You know, it's still a council house, but she just wants uh, a home of her own that she can be incredibly proud of. And her husband uses that opportunity to move her to this house, but also then to essentially maroon her or leave her. Uh, Because he says in the book, she is such a beautiful, precious, rare thing. He couldn't bear the idea of someone else coming along into her life. Uh, and mending the pieces and and being with his wife and so it serves his ego he's a very cruel man in that way but he says he, he, he doesn't he say something along the lines of he, he just wanted to see if she would do it and you know and, he, and having tested her and found that she she came with him that was enough and he could sort of then abandon her is that is that right that's right and i think there's echoes of that in society today i think that's why people ghost people they're dating and <laughs> it serves your ego a lot to know that someone's pining for you and can't get over you it it takes a big man to say you know this relationship is finished and shake your hand and leave the door and and shug is not a big man in the book and so he does cruelly abandon agnes and their children uh on the back of also puncturing all of our hopes um but i've always known addiction to be uh a thing that not only affects the person who is suffering from it but it has a scorching effect on the family and the community around the person And as you say, the three children are orbiting. They love their mother deeply, but they're sort of orbiting her as though she's this brightest star that then starts to collapse in on herself like a black hole. 
And they all have to face the, the choice of how far will you go to save the person you love the most before you have to save yourself. And Shuggy, as the youngest, is the one that's left not only with his mother, but also with the choices of his siblings. It's, yeah, it's, it's, the, I mean, that relationship is so affecting, obviously, um, particularly the relationship between Shuggy and his mother. And, the, and, and I was very struck by a comment sort of towards the end of the book when, when Leek, his brother, sort of almost, he sort of almost advises him to get out while he can. And I think mm. Shuggy just doesn't want to and can't for all the obvious reasons. Um, you've spoken and you've been asked, uh, I know, a great deal about your own relationship with your mother, who you mention in the acknowledgements and you talk about her alcohol addiction. Um, I'm not going to ask you kind of enough questions about to what extent you are Shuggy and to what extent Agnes is your mother. But I just wanted to talk a bit about the kind of the general cast and the, the, the general um, array of characters and to what extent they are the kind of people of your childhood and upbringing. Well, it's it's certainly a work of fiction, but uh, I did grow up as this, the queer son of a single mother. And my mum, uh, you know, was a really ambitious, beautiful woman, and I loved her very dearly. But there was she couldn't realise her dreams, and it sort of manifested into a deep hurt inside her, I think. And so she alcohol was always a, a feature of my childhood, from my earliest memories up until my mother lost her struggle with it when I was about 16. And and so although the book is not based on my mother, it's based on my love for my mother and the feelings of how children have hope and an unconditional love for parents who are flawed. But it's also just a look. I understand uh, addiction. I understand poverty, having grown up on government benefits. I understand misogyny and homophobia because of the time and the place I grew up in. And so I wanted to bring those experiences as themes to the book. All the characters are fictitious in the book, uh, and but they're composites of real Glaswegians. One of the biggest compliments I get ever when someone from home reads the book and he says, oh, I know a Jinty, or I know a Leek, and, and that's, that's when you know you've sort of made characters that feel very real to people. And part of the reason why the book took 10 years to write was because I was busy uh, sort of making a living elsewhere, but um, also because I love spending time with the characters and thinking about them and growing with them as a writer and really sort of trying to make them feel alive on the page. And I hope I've done that. You've certainly done that. And I was actually, I was, I was going to mention, Jin, is it Jinty McClinchy? Um, Jinty McClinchy, yeah. McClinchy, <laughs> wonderful, because she's always sort of popping around for a wee drink and then sort of va- vaguely robbing her friend or <laughs> just, just trying terror. to... She's a terror, Toby. She's a terror. She is, but I mean, you know, actually, you know, on the surface, it's 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 awful, of course it is. And Agnes is, is descending deeper and deeper into this very severe illness and Jinty is an enabler. But those bits are, they're funny. I mean, they're really funny. And there's that, you know, that tremendously amusing line about an awful thing where, where Agnes is raped and, and Jinty describes as having been a wee bit unlucky in love last night, I think mm. was the line, which is, you know, I mean, the, the, the kind of morbid humour that courses through this is, is absolutely wonderfully realised. And yeah, I think, uh, yeah, um, I, I can imagine Glaswegians, you know, reading it and, and if, you know, if, if they are seeing little bits of their world in there, I, I guess that must be tremendously um, gratifying to you. Um, I, I wonder what, to what extent you found this reception different in the UK in the US, do you, do you find that whether reviewers or, or, or even friends and other people you know have read it, have they kind of taken it slightly differently or is, is that not really the case at all? Yeah, it's, it's been a different experience all over, actually. Um, it was first, although I'm Glaswegian, I've lived in New York for a wee while now. So the book was first published in America uh, in February and published two weeks before the pandemic. So all these high hopes and then it was <laughs> it was sort of swallowed. But what was, what was refreshing about telling a Scottish story in America is critics and readers take the book on its successes or its failures and take it as a thing that stands alone. And suddenly when it came back to the UK, you can't help but intersect with conversations about class and history and myself and who I am and all of these other things. And and so it's just been even fascinating to to contextualise it in that way. But uh, has it been harder part- in a way, do you think, do you th- to sort of contextualize it in that way? Was it was it kind of easier for you to kind of be taken at face value, as it were, when when when, when it was just American readers reading it? Or is that not really the case for you? It's been incredibly difficult, yeah. to be honest, with you, Toby, because people can't help but bring their own baggage and their own notions to it. And uh, just we, you know, the class system in the UK is is really a thing. And, and part of moving to America was sort of freeing myself from that, you know, yes. having grown up working class and poor, I felt limits and I felt exclusions and I felt that there were rooms I weren't, I wasn't allowed in and rooms I was. 
And America has been freeing in that way. And so to bring this story home and to be met with that um, has been startling. I didn't realize I, I was unprepared, I suppose. I've been unprepared for a lot of things, but that was one of them. It took 10 years to write. Um, mm. And, you know, despite everything in the novel, the poverty, the addiction, the desperation, the sense mm. of this community having been hollowed out and abandoned by Thatcher, it's not an angry novel. I don't think anyone could classify it as an angry novel. And th- this may be a difficult question to answer, but was it ever an angry novel? Did you ever kind of feel as you were approaching it and starting it that you kind of needed to work off some anger? Or did, did the sort of tone just fall naturally into place? No, because I don't feel angry about the time. I feel sad, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and I feel a huge amount of loss. I I grieve for all the people who weren't supported enough to m- reach their potential or have the greatest lives they could. We know that unemployment was so high in the city. We know that drink and drugs and addiction swept in and that life expectancy is 14 years lower still today for many in Glasgow than it is for many in London. And so we know that there's that there's that gulf, and that doesn't make me angry. That just makes me incredibly sad. And then through the loss of my own mother, uh, I feel nothing. That's almost been thirty years now, Toby, and I feel nothing but love and a, a desire to sort of memorialize her and all the formidable, strong, exhausting, <laughs> terrifying women that surrounded her as well. You know, all these very complex characters, and and so I just came at it at that. But also, I think because I come from outside of traditional publishing circles. I didn't come up through a creative writing workshop or an MFA, as they call it in America. I wrote the book for myself in a lot of ways, and I wrote it in isolation. And so it allowed me only to focus on what the characters needed and not what readers expected. Uh, And that was a good place to be because it allowed me to be brave. It allowed me to have no expectations of the work. And it also allowed me to hopefully show things with really a clear gaze, which I think... I hope, lends a dignity to the situation, even when the scenes are difficult or tough or horrible to look at. Absolutely. It's, it's, dig, dignity is, is one of the central qualities of this novel, and it's not just Agnes either. I mean, you can you can just feel it kind of coursing, coursing through the book. Um, I, I wonder how, so, you know, you, you, you were writing it for yourself. How, how did the kind of first break happen? I mean, I, I, I gather you sent it off to a few agents and, you know, it wasn't immediately accepted. Where, where did you get your first literary break? Well, actually, I can, I can give you a, a real scoop, Toby, and tell you the <laughs> from the background I haven't told anyone. Uh, probably about 2017, after working on it for 10 years, I went to a Christmas party in New York and we were all sort of, uh, you know, everyone's just celebrating. And I met a woman at the party and she said, what are you doing? I said, I work in fashion. I said, what do you do? And she says, I work in publishing. I just lost, she said, I just lost my job. I was an editor and I was fired. And I said, I've written a book. And <laughs> that's the worst thing anybody at a party or that works in publishing wants to hear. And she just looked cornered. And I was so enthusiastic. And, uh, this poor person who is gone on to be a wonderful agent called Tina Pullman uh, was just terrified. <laughs> and so after sort of uh, spending some time and realizing I wasn't a lunatic, um, she said, I'll read your book and if you want, and I'll give you some feedback. It will take me six months. And I handed her the manuscript after 10 years. And so this was some days later. She called me about four hours later and she said, you have a you have a finished novel. And I was only looking for feedback around that. I, I was loving the writing of it so much. I wanted perspective so that I could write some more. Um, that was what it meant to me. And she said, no, no, you're finished. You're, <laughs> was that um, disappointing in some way? Were you, were you... <laughs> in a way, because uh, I write for the love of the craft of it. And so in a way, I was looking for just to make this even richer than hopefully it was. But uh, from there, I did what any debut novelist does. I, I queried, uh, Tina gave me some confidence. She gave me some encouragement. And then I queried agents, was rejected by a bunch of agents. And then when I finally landed with a wonderful agent, she sent the manuscript out and it was rejected. She told me it was rejected 20 times in America. Uh, but actually, it turns out it was rejected 32 times. <laughs> She's um, just trying to save you. <laughs> she was just saving me. She was saving me. She never lost faith, but I think perhaps I was wilting. Extraordinarily, you are only the second Scot to win the Booker, which just mm. seems weird and I just don't really get it. But um, your predecessor, James Kelman, has been a big mm. influence on you as well. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about influence generally. You've mentioned Hardy. Um, Kelman mm. helped you to... I don't know, have a, maybe not have a voice, but gave, gave you a sense that, 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 you know, the Scottish voice, there was a place for it in, in, you know, in, in literary culture? Yeah, I always like to start with a little sort of footnote and say 
Kelman and myself are not the only two Scottish writers. There's urgent, wonderful, terrific Scottish writing every single day. And I'm a huge fan of Graham Armstrong, Kirsten Innes and Jenny Fagan, particularly as contemporary writers. Uh, but when I was a kid growing up, you know, the curriculum gave us the classics, which were a lot of, you know, middle class English writers. And it was only when I got into my 20s that I was able to sort of turn around and seek out for myself queer voices, but also Scottish voices. And that's when I discovered writers like Kelman, Agnes Owens, George Frio, the wonderful Alan Warner. And that for me blew books open. It wasn't that I only read Scottish writing, but it's that it's important for all of us, no matter who you are, to have to read, to travel and see other worlds and places you don't see. But we also always need to see representation of ourselves on the page. And so Kelman was one of my first influences and how late it was, how late is a remarkable book. I mean, it's a stream of consciousness about a Glaswegian alcoholic that wakes up blind in a prison cell and then spends the rest of this really chaotic weekend both navigating his new disability and getting around the city. It's an incredibly brave book. It's propulsive. It's it's violent, uh, but it's also incredibly wonderful. And so it's been a huge influence on me. Another thing you said in relation to, to, to the setting of your novel is that there's a danger of, well, maybe not a danger, but there's a, there could be a problem of poverty safari, you know, of middle class readers coming to, to your world for a good gawp before returning to their smashed avocado or whatever it is they're returning to. <laughs> but, and I was thinking about that because it's, it's really interesting. But then I was thinking, in a sense, all reading is a safari of some kind or another, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, we want to blur the lines between us and other people and, and all the rest of it, but we're always, to some extent, looking in. And I just wonder what what you hope readers will take away from Shuggy Bane and the kind of the view of that Glasgow that they get. You're right that all reading is a safari. And and it doesn't... The, the, the idea of a poverty safari doesn't isn't the fault of a, of a reader. It's a thing we're conditioned in society when you grow up maybe poor or there's trouble at home or there's things that are less seemly, you're told to keep it at home. And even within working class communities, if you if you share it and if you tell people even on your street about it, they're like, why are you telling people? You know, it's 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 rooted in shame. It's rooted in shame. And so I hope when I wrote the book, I wanted it to be as immersive as possible because I thought if I am going to share this story with people who come from a different background, then I want them to be in the room with Agnes and Shuggy and to feel it fully, uh, to hear it, to smell it, to touch it, and to really take the characters as much as any reader can as a care and a concern of their own, rather than just being able to be guided through it by an author who scoots you through it and sends you out the other end back to your own life. Come, Robots and Murder, as we look back at the career of Agatha Christie and review the latest novel by Kazuo Ishiguro. And if you like what you've heard so far, please do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. accounts of you know Owen possibly going around the east end of London and cruising and Shadwell Stairs is his experience of that. Owen writes, I walk till the stars of London wane and dawn creeps up the Shadwell Stair but when the crowing sirens blare I with another ghost am lain. And so when you read this as a cruising poem you actually understand it as being a quite (laughs) radical unexpected poem about Owen's promiscuity in the east end of London while he's on shore leave. I mean, he goes into the whole history of bipedalism and how the human being got up on its hind legs and walked and uh, what a huge difference this has made to humanity and culture and, and, our, and our way of living. I mean, my big toes by now are completely horrible, so I didn't like to be made to think about them too much. They're really, <laughs> truly hideous now. But he does say we must look at our big toes bravely and learn to confront them.
I don't know, but this is probably kind of a terrible thing to say, but I think some of the sort of pressure goes out of the poem in those last couple of books. I, I'm sort of not so interested in all the firing the arrows through the axe heads and the sort of slaughtering the suitors. Don't know what you feel, Lucy, because you were a classicist and like, it seems to slightly lose its way there. Actually, the bit with the dog is very moving. When he just arrives, Terribly that, moving. that's very moving. And then you're right, very things moving. have to be settled. But actually, I think also all the business with the maids and the killing them and things. Oh, God. Yeah, reminds you that he's a warrior. He's not a lovely guy. Oh, no. <laughs> it's awful, isn't it? That bit is so Puritan, isn't it? <laughs> just, because they, just because they're having a bit of fun with the suitors, they get hanged. And, and you're right that the, the Penelope thing, there has to be a mechanism by which they have to get back together. So it's a brilliant way to, to do it. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about the bed is absolutely lovely. The olive tree, yeah. very moving and tender. But by that point, he's already killed so many people. (laughs) (laughs) And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer. Exclusive, that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS. And that's print and digital. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Later on, we'll be picking through the book, a long-listed book, Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. But first, to the queen of crime and mystery, Agatha Christie, who in her prime was rarely out of the bestseller list. As of 2018, Guinness World Records listed Christie as the best-selling fiction writer of all time, and her novels have now sold more than 2 billion copies in 44 languages. So what is the secret to Christie's continued appeal, and how have her stories remained relevant? Agatha Christie's biographer Laura Thompson joined us to share her theory. It's reality versus truth, I suppose. You know, her villages are a very good example. They are an artistic construct. But I grew up in a village and there's a lot of it that rings true to me. Um, And also the village is the brilliant uh, thread whereby she does trace change um, because the village is her kind of default setting, if you like, um, because it's a microcosm of human nature, which is completely true, I think. Uh, Really, I do. Well, before we head into the village, because, I mean, as you say, that's a really, really rich uh, 
area to explore. You start your 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 essay, and and this is how we know we're going to be following a, a different and a very interesting line from the get go. You start your essay um, with her novel from nineteen sixty five, Bertram's Hotel. So we sort of start in the in the foyer of, of Bertram's Hotel. Now you say it's it's not one of the classic Christie novels. So tell us what attracts you to this one. How does it help you kind of? expound your thesis well it's I suddenly thought oh my god this is genius this is genius this is her I'm not saying she's doing this deliberately part of the beauty of her is that although she is so structured and so um you know controlled as a writer you do always get the feeling that there's something instinctive about it and um I think with Bertram's Hotel kind of the same thing it, it, it starts almost like it's 1965 and Harold Wilson is prime minister, but who cares? Let's all go and have cucumber sandwiches in this wonderful hotel, which is like this dream, dream of Edwardian England. Miss um, Marple has gone back there in a spirit of à la recherche. She's, she's gone back. She used to go there as a girl. They're all the same things that happened to Agatha herself. She used to go to the army and navy and she'd go to a matinee in a four-wheeler with a pound of coffee creams. That's all what Agatha did. So she's putting her memories into Miss Marple and she's gone back to this glorious hotel in a side street in Mayfair. It's kind of, people say, Flemings, um, where the world has, has stopped. The clock has stopped and the lounge is full of minor aristocrats aristocracy and archdeacons and blah 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 and they're all being served tea in a way that recreates the glories to Agatha of the days when you had servants and they had a status of their own um it was a hierarchy in which everyone had a a, a real respect and status that's how she saw it and of course the whole thing is um virtual reality Bertram's hotel is a crime ring it's a front for a crime. I'm sorry I'm giving away an ending here. I'm not giving away the whole thing. <laughs> Spoiler from 1965. Yeah, sorry. Um, but it's, it's, it's not giving away who did the murder, so I'm going to get out of it like that. But it, um, it's a, it, it, the whole thing is a, is a construct. You think you're back in the days of the golden age detective story. And oh, isn't that lovely and all that. She's playing a kind of giant joke on the reader, whereby she says, my God, did you really think this? When, when I say, oh, how marvellous to be here, not a bit of plastic in the place, and a real chambermaid. Uh, the real chambermaid's an out-of-work actress, and the, half the archdeacons and what have you are um, criminals dressed up for the part. It's, it's such a coup, I think, and it kind of says... It's 1965, I'm 75 years old, and I have moved with the times more than you give me credit for. It, it feels a bit like um, if, a, if, let's say, an, a, an American postmodernist writer had done that in 1965, it would have been hailed as a brilliant, do you know what I mean, a brilliant fourth wall-breaking revolutionary move. But as you say, it's almost as though she was hiding in plain sight and nobody noticed this very audacious thing. That's... Exactly. And that's a brilliant. I wish I'd written that. That's absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely brilliant. And I think completely true. And, and she's, even when her reputation was, was low, which was kind of the last quarter of the 20th century, and I started researching it in 2003, and people sort of was still pretty snooty about her. She, she always had a following among French intellectuals. And you, you could kind of understand that because there is this subtext says that the real murder is somebody else she's she's writing on that two level thing um but I still think you would have to give her credit for creating these things that are uh they have an an enduring value um which is why she's still up and running in a way that people like other other golden age writers are not but I mean, in a way, um, you were sort of alluding to it there. Um, the simplicity of of her books—it's both—it's kind of both the problem and the success of them, isn't it? It's both—it's for better and for worse. Yes, I, I really do think that. Um, oh, look, I'm her—I'm a fan, you know. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, I've been a fan since I was 10 or whatever. And, and it's, it's, I did always think, you know, reading them age 10 or whatever, um, there's the, 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 a mesmeric quality to them. You know, there's a kind of, you know, my brother and I used to recite that gramophone record from And Then There Were None at Each Other, it, it, which is ridiculous in one way, but in another way is a tribute to the, 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 the kind of incantatory power of her incredibly simple style. Um, but of course, you can easily say simplistic. Well, it's, it's, it's quite hard to imagine um, an author for whom it's more true that someone, one person can look at it and, and see uh, a negative while another person looks at the exact same thing and sees a positive. I mean, I'm thinking of, we don't think of, of Agatha Christie as being a, a details person uh, so much. There's a lot of sketching and skimming, uh, you know, and some people will see this as um, as just, you know, further evidence that she's she's just not that good. You know, she's a bit of a hack. Um, whereas you you turn it so that in fact this is a this is a very conscious choice and the the, the notebooks support this um, based on her deep understanding of of human psychology. She's she's you know even her publisher Alan Alan Lane um, said he said how the hell does she do it? You know we we really don't know. She herself couldn't explain how she wrote the books and yet her writing notebooks are yes they are assiduous in working out the plot, but even they sort of work out the plot in almost scenic um, fashion. She was, although I don't rate her plays at all, she was an absolute theatre nut from a very young age. And I think there is a kind of um, scenic, you know, it must be very frustrating to people who adapt them because actually you could just put them straight on the screen and I think they would work incredibly well because that is how naturally she wrote, I think. Um, I was just going to say that in terms of the spareness of it, the, uh, and in a way the, um, the output, the only person I can think of who, who was even faintly comparable is Simenon. Mm. Yes, 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 and even more um, productive, yes. Yes, yeah, who's also beloved by French intellectuals. <laughs> well, French so? intellectuals love crime fiction, just full stop yeah. really don't they oh do they yeah. oh okay yeah it's a it's a real it's a real it's a real thing um I don't know why perhaps the 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 genre seems to be and Lucy correct me if I'm wrong but the genre seems to be much more um you know a, not so much appreciated but elevated than it than it is here here it's kind of like oh well it's genre fiction that kind of out slightly outdated term that people like to use disparagingly uh, whereas in France that's never really been the case no no there's a lot of respect a lot of respect for them and I don't think there's any there's no shame I think to be seen reading them and and obviously there's just some and there still are right now that, that are just very very good and also probably and this is being flippant, but if you're a French intellectual, you probably would like a bit of plot, wouldn't you? After a bit? <laughs> some, some stuff happening. Maybe. Something to hold on to. Yeah. That's very funny. <laughs> can, I ask you, can I ask you a question about um, Endless Night from 1967? Because you, you mentioned that, and it seems... Uh, I haven't read it, and it's not one that I, I recall hearing very much about. It seems... You call it um, a last classic, and, but it seems sort of like an outlier in the oeuvre in some, in some ways. What, what do you think she's sort of setting out to do in that one? Endless Night is a, is, is a first-person narrative, and it's a young man. He's sexy. He's, she, you know, says working class. He's got nothing. He's got no money. He's just got a huge amount of sex appeal and a kind of ambition that is nebulous um, but overweening. And... She, she writes this book from his point of view, his desire to, 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 to get something out of life without really earning it, which is, I suppose, um, by her standards, growing up in this kind of Christian, late Victorian, um, is, a, is a, a, a sensibility that is uh, inimical to her. But she inhabits it absolutely brilliantly, and it does feel a very fresh contemporary book now. Um, you know, that culture of, well, if you like, the kind of celebrity culture or something or something for nothing or whatever. Um, she's not condemnatory at all. She's very non-judgmental as a writer. I do find that, despite her stern moral code. Uh, that sounds like a contradiction, but I, I feel both those things. And 
she just inhabits this young man in a first-person narration. And she, to my mind, there's very few false notes in it. She writes about him thinking about sex. It's, it's, it's kind of comes easily. Um, and she said, you know, people were amazed that I'd done it. Well, I didn't find it difficult at all. I listened to people and I just sort of did it. I don't know how disingenuous that is, but it is an outlier. Uh, it's a kind of character study, but I think very, very successful. And um, probably one of her best books, actually. Yes, I'm going to read that one. It sounds, it sounds incredible. Please let me know what you think. I do absolutely get what you because sometimes. I mean, I've read them so many times; it's ridiculous. Um, and they've got me through, you know, feeling ill and bereavement and all sorts of things. Um, but you know, sometimes I read them and I think, oh, come on, this is just flat, plain, clever. But what? Why are you? And then another time I'll read them and just the feeling of the end coming. It's a little bit like um, I say in the book, adult fairy tales, you know, that beautiful sense of resolution that you get when you're a kid and you read a fairy tale. Um, There is a sort of magic about that on some fundamental, um, you know, just the beauty of narrative that we all feel uh, that, that she reduces to very, very simple elements. And there is something quite exciting about that. But again, you know, I don't want to say that she's better than um, Muriel Spark or whatever. And, and in one way, it is pure genre. And she never strays outside the genre in the way that other, you know, P.D. James writes these kind of Dickensian, weighty sort of... She, she is pure genre which is what fascinates me all the more because all the mystery of why she is so enduring and fascinating is within and hidden. Um, I can't think of anyone quite like her, although you say Simonon, that's an, that's interesting. That's an interesting comparison, I think. But um, she is certainly unlike any other detective of, of her contemporaries, for example. She couldn't be more unlike, really, I don't think. Laura Thompson talking to us there about the life and works of Agatha Christie. Now, we heard earlier on from last year's winner of the Booker Prize, but now to a book that is a contender this time around. Clara and the Sun is the latest novel from the Nobel Prize winner Kazuo Ishiguro. Our critic Edmund Gordon read it and talked us through it in as spoiler-free a manner as possible. I will certainly try to do that, but it's a very difficult novel to discuss without spoilers because... More and more of the world is revealed as it um, progresses. It's narrated by a robot who begins, called Clara, who uh, begins the story unsold in a shop and understands basically nothing about the world she lives in. And she's subsequently purchased by a 14-year-old girl called Josie and taken home with her. And she starts to piece together how her world works and it's only as she does that we are able to understand anything about it so if I say anything more than I've already said which I will I'll say a little bit more but I'm already putting the listener in a different position when they come to the novel than I was in when I read it so switch off now if you don't want to hear anything <laughs> but she so I, sh- I shouldn't say that <laughs> I shouldn't say that but she um she gradually comes to understand that robots like her I mean, it's it's set in the near future in what seems to be America and that advances in automation and artificial intelligence have led to a complete restructuring of society, basically, and especially a restructuring of the world of work. And most members of what are referred to in the novel as the former professional classes have been made redundant and have sort of left the cities where they lived and moved to these kind of alternative communities. And... In addition to that, uh, children, certainly sort of privileged children, such as Josie, are what's called lifted in the novel, which means genetically edited, genetically manipulated to give them some chance of obtaining one of the few remaining jobs. And there are various other twists and revelations as it progresses, which I won't reveal. Um, But even what I've said already sort of only comes into focus quite slowly as you're reading. You, yeah, you say um, in your review that it is sometimes hard to form certainly a clear 
picture of what's happening, even in quite a literal way, because the story is narrated very much from Clara's point of view. So you see, you literally see how she sees because the way that she, well, you can explain how, how she visualises things. Yeah, well, there's lots of odd sort of optical effects almost in the novel where Clara, I think even when her vision, it's not 100% clear, I have to say, but I think that even when her vision is operating as it usually does, she visualises things in quite a different way to us. So, for example, she seems completely unable to distinguish between different specimens of the same type. So if she encounters two sets of red shelves or two of the same brand of machine, she will think that they are literally the same one as one another. But then sometimes, and this seems to be to do with a sort of uh, processing error, it seems to be at moments of heightened emotional activity her vision kind of fragments and breaks up into a series of separate panels or boxes which don't I described it in the piece as being like a poorly assembled jigsaw puzzle so you'll have different parts of the picture which which sort of belong together spread across her visual plane you know when you uh, uh you have to sign into something and you have to do I'm not a robot and <laughs> yes. you have the boxes with different things in that's what it made me think of well yeah it's sort of like that except there the the boxes do form a coherent picture they haven't been scrambled they're just kind of separated from one another aren't they I can't quite visualize one of those but yeah maybe that is that's where he took it from but it does mean that that you're sort of the mental track that you have of what's going on is sometimes quite fuzzy and beyond that I think there are things that Clara doesn't understand that therefore we can't really understand that are just sort of permanently obscure to us you know there are, there are scenes that she sees that she doesn't know how to interpret or that she obviously misinterprets and there's no key available, I think, to us to sort of work out what's really going on behind that. Yes, which I quite like because it's not it's not spelled out for you. You've really just got to think about it and it's not always clear. But it, it does seem surprising because on one hand, she's a very, very sophisticated, like extremely sophisticated AI. And on the other hand, you think, well, there's a lot about the world that she doesn't know, but maybe then... The idea is that they've done that on purpose because she's supposed to be a companion for a child, isn't she? And there is a kind of childlike element to the whole thing. I read um, that Ishiguro said it originally started as a story for his yeah. daughter when she was young and he showed it to his wife and his wife said, there's <laughs> no way you are publishing that as a children's book. It's far, it's far too bleak. I read that as well. And I suppose there is a kind of, I mean, there's a, there's a the, the mood of the novel is quite optimistic, basically, I think, in spite of the darkness of the world. And I suppose that might be what's been carried over from that original iteration. But yeah, it doesn't seem like a children's book to me. Now, when you say that Clara is uh, has got a, a more distant perspective, but did you not feel that she becomes more engaged and learns more? We're, being, we're told um, often that she's a particularly perceptive AI, that she's particularly good at that. Yeah, we're told that often, but that seems to me like a sort of misdirection or uh, or signposting that we're supposed to start wondering whether she is, because she certainly gets a lot of stuff wrong about what's happening. And she often, you know, although she will take interest in a given subject or, or relationship between people, she'll kind of get the wrong end of the stick about it. So I think she's certainly curious. That's a word that I would apply to her. But I think whether she's observant or perceptive I mean observant I don't know if it's deliberate that there's that word used about her when we know from her own descriptions that her optical field is sort of all over the place she often is completely incapable of observing things in a reliable manner and so there's, there's various ways that we think about the the AI she's called an AF an artificial friend isn't mm. she but if it, let's say uh, I'm in a humanless future and I'm an AI and I'm reading this for reference to find out about humans I'm fine with the AI stuff I've got that how do you think I would think about the humans in it I mean <laughs> I think that they um the human characters there's a lot of love in this novel um most of them are acting out of love for other characters within the novel sometimes there's Clara sort of sees them all as lonely but again I'm not sure that we're supposed to take that as literal I think that they have hope and that they sort of power themselves with their hope for the future and quite often that comes to nothing but I think that they're on 
certainly the main characters. There are sort of four central human characters. And I think that they're all likable characters. Uh, there are some less likable figures in the background. I have to say, though, speaking as, a, as an AI against the humans, <laughs> they, they, they make some pretty questionable decisions. And also there is the question of, of how Clara is treated. I mean, towards the end of the novel, and I don't, I, I, you know, it's hard to discuss this without spoilers, but certainly their treatment of her is, does seem slightly callous. And yet it is hard to tell the extent to which she is intended to be a, you know, sort of character fully equipped with emotional responses. But there's a point in the book when she says, isn't she, I, 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 I think I have feelings. Yeah. I'm, I'm having feelings about this. Yeah, there is, absolutely. I mean, I don't know, maybe this is just human chauvinism on my part, but I certainly found the relations between the human characters much more moving than I did Clara's own trajectory during it and I more or less viewed her as a kind of a window onto the human characters yes and even the the people that you worry about which again it seemed to be clearly signposted that then some terrible stuff might happen to them there's a couple of them actually in different situations this sort of human ingenuity and hope I suppose finds a way through doesn't it yeah absolutely and it's just you know the, the the overall tone of the novel is one of kind of optimism and tenderness and and love I think. I was going to ask you about that because he uh, reading about him again he said he's often been surprised at the reception of his books so, because he didn't think that Never Let Me Go was very bleak he was very <laughs> surprised when everyone said oh my gosh <laughs> you know? he's like oh I thought that one was pretty nice and tender. It was supposed to be another child's book presumably. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine. Is he trolling us I just don't know I mean he's <laughs> Yeah, it didn't seem to me like a cheery story, Never Let Me Go. This does seem to me, I don't know, cheerier in tone, at least, if not in kind of content all the time. But, I mean, it's hard to know when writers talk about their books. It's hard to know the extent to which we should take them seriously sometimes. Excellent general rules going think out should just not. <laughs> so I think but it's the case for most people that their books are cleverer than they are. So I think we shouldn't necessarily <laughs> listen to an author's uh, what they have to say about how their book should be interpreted. Thank you for listening to this edition of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell, looking back at the past year on this show. We'll be back in September with a return to regular programming. But in the meantime, issues of the TLS continue to appear every week and our summer double issue towards the end of this month looks set to be quite something. So why not look into a print and digital subscription? You'll find a special subscription offer just for podcast listeners in this episode's description. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye and see you in September. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.